All right. So my adventures in getting delivery for my groceries. Mm-hmm. Yet another fucking success story. I am obsessed with this. I'm never going back to buying groceries at the actual grocery store. I'm sure I've complained what? about this. I get so stressed out. I just throw things into my bag willy-nilly. I'm just a total basket case in there. Uh-huh. Grocery basket. You see Terrible. <laughs> oh, but I think that that's part of the going to the grocery store. I like going for like, oh, I'm just going to like have a browse. Like I actually love the grocery store for a browse. But in terms of like getting a cohesive, like responsible amount of food to last me X amount of time. I have to do it online now. This is the only way. <laughs> I, It's genius. Anyways, so I – and the dramas, the highs and lows. I get all these text messages on the day that I'm getting my food delivered being like, X, Y, and Z hasn't been able to find this product that you need, but they found this instead. Are you okay? Okay, these substitutions. And it's just a roller coaster of emotions. Anyways. Do they ever substitute like insane things? Like why – like is it an insight into the person who is collecting your groceries? I mean, I think it is an insight into the person collecting the groceries in general, but I don't think it's an insight in like the substitutions because I think that they have pretty strict rules about what they can do. What I find most fascinating is I like look at it and I'm like, you just didn't give a fuck about my vegetables, did you? Like sometimes I'll be looking at it and I'm like, I'm very specific about what I like for my fruits and my veggies. Like I like them less, you know, like less ripe, I would say. Anyways... Mm. And so that makes sense. But then yeah. I've gotten two bags of avocados that are just completely rock solid. It took me forever to get a usable avocado. I lost two in the process because I was too overeager. That's just how avocados work, though. It's been a nightmare. You like avocados are an events and are an investment. You like buy them to in keep advance. them. I feel like I'm like propagating a crop when I have them there. Like I have to like watch them, keep my eyes. Anyways, this is old news about avocados. The good news <laughs> is is I ordered corn because I was inspired by this week's theme, which is corn, maize if you will. <laughs> and I you know, I thought to myself I should get some of that, make some corn salad because I love me a corn salad. Mm-hmm. And I did. But originally they were out. And then the guy called me last minute and was like, I found some. Don't worry about it. Like, really excited that he'd made it happen for me. So thank you to the Loblaws shoppers. Was this, okay, was this like corn that was frozen or corn like that was came on a cob and then you cooked it and scraped it off the cob? How did you make this salad? Always fresh. I don't know why anyone would buy like frozen corn except for in an emergency. It's weird. I don't know. I don't. I went through a real phase of eating baby corns, like, out of a can when I was a kid. Oh, I love baby corns. They're so, so good. Are they actual corn? I actually haven't... I didn't even think about them. They are. They're them. actual yeah. corns. They're just, like, a weird, like, yeah. thing. <laughs> I feel like they're almost, like, the tip of an actual cob, if mm. that makes sense. Like, Yes. That's what it looks like. Yeah. But they um, seem too long. There are no words to express what they are. <laughs> Besides, okay. I suppose, maize. Uh, anyway. So, uh, yeah. Welcome to Pantry Staples, everybody. <laughs> Hello, I'm Emily. And I'm Marika. And we will be discussing maize or corn. I would like to preface off the start that I will be using both terms interchangeably to mean the same, same thing. Even though in traditionally in Europe, it may, corn refers to just like any kind of, I think, like starchy grain. Mm-hmm. Where it, in, it just means kernel, I think. Doesn't That's it? it. God, I, I saw this summer in my research and I was like, <laughs> ah, I don't need to write that down. <laughs> the research is 
so loose as per usual. Uh, yeah. Uh, just a polite reminder that I am not qualified to talk about anything to do with genomes or botany or anything really, except for maybe my own bullshit. And yeah, no, that's, that. both of us are only really qualified to talk about our own bullshit. And yet here we are. What a time. <laughs> so I shall give you a start just by running through like the origins of corn, where it came from. And then kind of how it spread and became the phenomena that it truly is. And just to give some context to the fact that it is like a phenomena of food, Mm -hmm. corn provides 21% of human nutrition across the globe. (sighs) That's almost a quarter of our food calories. Yeah. That's freaking nuts. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyways, it's eaten in many different forms, off the cob, in flour and syrup. It's food for livestock, which is an enormous portion of what we're using it for, actually. Uh, It's used for ethanol to make plastic and liquor. Oh, yes. Which I'm not getting into because I... I Good. It's it's too much for my tender heart at the moment. (laughs) Should we do shots for this? Like, when we're discussing it? We'll get to that. Anyways, so corn has an enormously broad range of cultivation from about 40 degrees south in latitude, which is about Chile, Argentina, that kind of an area, to Mm -hmm. about 50 degrees north. So that's Canada. It's also Russia. Like, when you think, okay, Canada, like, maybe because we're from Vancouver and it's not, like, a particularly cold area, I don't think of it as a very, like, cold climate. But when I think Russia, I think that's frigid as hell. Yeah. Uh, so that's crazy that you can still be growing corn up there. Now, it's also grown from sea level to 3,400 meters above sea level. So that's an enormous altitude, too, which I think is important to recognize that, like, this is, like, almost everywhere that you can grow this crop. Do you, do you have, like, a metaphor for what that altitude means? Because that number? No, I meant to look it up, but it's basically, like, the Andes is wow. what it's okay. talking about. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah. So, like, Machu Picchu. That kind of thing. Right. That's in the Andes, right? Oh my god, I'm like sounding like such an absolute moron now. But like it's in Peru. Oh my god, maybe it's not because the Andes are like Chile and Argentina. Fuck. Ignore all of should, this. Should I look this up right now? You probably should. I'll continue. Okay. Um, so the first thing is, what is the like genetic ancestor of maize? What is the original form that we are seeing it in? It's not the kernels, the cobs that we have today. That is obviously very, very selectively bred to look a certain way the genetic ancestor of maize is previously thought to be a type of wild maize but it's extinct now we know that it's actually believed or not believed it's known to be uh derived from a mexican grass called teosinte which people originally thought that this was closer to rice than to corn just because of its appearance it was very it does look kind of like rice actually if you see it the kernels are not in rows in the same way. It's like a very short kind of cob, but the kernels are just kind of like intermittent everywhere. There's not a ton of them. They're very like heavily encased. Oh, interesting. Kind of more like wheat? Yeah, definitely yeah. closer to wheat. Uh, so it's interesting because you can't get a ton off of it. Like it's very, very different from what we see today. And it's actually, I read a little bit being like, why the heck were people so interested in cultivating this? Like what was the appeal? Because it wasn't as this... Like, it it just didn't provide the same kind of food source that we have it today as. And there is some thought that maybe it was because people were enjoying eating the leaves of it, like the ears of corn, because they were, like, sweet and nutritious. But the most popular, and I think the most accurate, in my opinion, would be because they could use these stalks for alcohol. 
Oh, perfect. So oh, they're uh, like, yeah. these kernels, that's secondary. Like, Power. good that we have them, but whatever. But also, I don't know, that kind of negates, well, maybe it goes hand in hand. I don't know enough enough about the genetics of it, but it seems really strange that we would only be using the stalks and then happen upon these cobs that are so much more beneficial to giving us, like, huge amounts of nutrients. And, like, mm-hmm. it just, it makes sense that they w- would be concerned with not just the stock. They'd also be concerned with, like, the kernels. For sure. I would also like to interrupt and say that the Machu Picchu oh, is in you. the Andes. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Interesting for all of us. Well, more so yes. for me. Everyone involved. Uh, more so for Google, because when I looked up where the Andes, like what countries that interacted with earlier, it just said Chile and Argentina. So that was mm. where my confusion lay. Yeah. Um. Anyways. So there's all this debate. People are like, what the heck is corn from? I don't know. So then in the 1930s, George W. Beadle found that the chromosomes of maize and teosinte, that wild grass in Mexico, were very similar. Many mm. thought that the differences between these two plants were too great for the relatively short period of domestication to link them properly. Because when you look at pictures of teosinte, you're like, that is not corn. And it happened like in, in terms of evolution, like a very, you know, a short period. Right. But you know beetle was convinced and then it took him like 30 more years to kind of get into it i guess oh i don't know there was just like there was a lot going on i think he had other things happening like other research to do he wasn't super corn focused maybe i don't know um or maybe the community just wasn't ready for it and the science like did improve to a point so around like the 1960s he found that through crossing the two plants the teosinte and corn from today that only four or five genes controlled the major differences in these plants so a group of botanists led by John Dobley, they collected samples of teosinte from its entire geographical range, so anywhere that it was found to grow naturally, and they compared it to, like, the modern varieties of maize to see where it was going to be, like, closestly, like, the closest link to it, mm-hmm. which they ended up finding was in the central Balsas River Valley of southern Mexico. So this is the indigenous homeland of corn. Very right. which tough. makes sense. Totally makes sense. Like, anecdotally. but Anecdotally, totally. Yeah. But it's also just, like, really interesting that they, like, managed to locate it. They also managed to determine that domestication occurred about 9,000 years ago. So we've got wow. kind of a timeline yeah. that we're working with. Um, then you have a team of archaeologists led by Anthony Rainer and Dolores Paperno uh, that went to the Balsas River Valley region to excavate. They wanted to look for any kind of tools that might have been used to mill the uh, maize. They also were looking for any kind of maize residue on things, mm-hmm. which they did find in a cave. It's the Sihuantuxla, I suck, I'm sorry, shelter that dated back to 87,000 or 8,700 years ago, uh, which is the oldest physical evidence of maize. So that's kind of the timeline that we're on. That's kind of the start of things. Right. But then how is it getting everywhere from Mexico? How is it getting so different? So this Yeah, because is... that, that's a lot of evolution to happen in a short period of time and a lot of expansion too. It's a huge amount of expansion, which really does speak to how like hardy and mm. industrious this is as a starch. Like it's yeah. crazy sauce. So this is where it gets like vaguely timeline confusing. And I think it's because all the different articles that I have are from different kind of like research different like times that the research was done so forgive me for any errors here but the general gist of it is the spread of this corn like the evolutionary pattern of it was split into several different directions originally we thought kind of two like you have the domestication that's happening in mexico where 
it's interacting with that parent teosinte plant and it's got mm-hmm. this kind of feedback loop going on and then you see it being brought into south america so the earliest that you're getting it brought into south america is about 6500 years ago and that is like okay. through the amazon into the andes so it's very much southwestern south america that's where we're seeing it and is it brought like like on the river like by is it brought by people or just by like winds or we don't know we don't know i don't think that it's possible to really trace that but i would assume mm-hmm. like again this is where i think if you're like studying botany and you're looking at how like crops and stuff like that kind of propagate in history you would yeah. know this a bit better but what my understanding and what my kind of impressions were was that this is something that's definitely being done like intentionally like it's right. not just floating through the wind like it's being mm-hmm. brought but yeah. that's not to say that I don't think that there isn't like an element of kind of chance to it perhaps as well. So I think yeah, it's maybe sure. a combo platter, but I do think there is an intentionality that we need to acknowledge there. Mm-hmm. So that's one area that it's going to. Then you have this other potential split that is going into Eastern South America. So like kind of Venezuela, Brazil, like coming down that East side. And that is happening much later. That said, these are both coming not from the Teosinte as we like know it in the wild, but from like a protocorn type. So there's already been some sort of domestication that's occurred in Mexico in that, you know, that very specific region. And then we see that protocorn getting brought into these two areas. Right. Cool. Yeah. So the domestication that's happening in the South American varietals is happening much quicker because they don't have that feedback loop with that teosinte the original like kind of parent of it so they're just doing its own thing um Mm -hmm. and it's really like strengthening the more like corniness of it i think so what's really interesting to see is that like the adaptations that are happening here because these are very much different climates like Mm. especially especially in the andes like this is highly elevated you're in mountains like you need different things to grow like the air is different there like yeah everything's soil is different yeah like everything is so different so you have all these adaptations that are happening to make that more agreeable to there uh to make the corn more agreeable to live on the east coast like all of these sorts of things are happening um let's see there's also trade of ceramics that's kind of going on in south america that's happening that kind of corresponds with this also what's really interesting is that there is a linguistic pattern that if you follow like also kind of corresponds to these areas where you're seeing the word for maize that was used like by indian indigenous populations mm-hmm. and then amazonian arawak languages into brazilian macro i don't know what any of these are but i'm just assuming indigenous languages yeah um, like it suggests this kind of same spread and this kind of pattern of growth worth seeing. Cool. So it's like people are migrating and moving around in areas and they're bringing corn and language with them. Yes, totally. Cool. So that's really interesting. So at the same time as the later kind of spread into that eastern part of South America, we or maybe like a little bit later or maybe a little bit earlier, like within a hundred years of it, it's actually spreading northward as well. So it's going up into America. And then subsequently, like, further up into Canada. So that's interesting as well. Yeah, so anyways, that study was done by Logan Kistler, if I didn't say that already. So he was the one who kind of was looking at these different routes that this protocorn is being domesticated through, which is really interesting. Um, So, yeah, by about, like, 2000 to 2500 BCE, 
we have these crops into the Americas, like fully, like South and North America, like things are happening. It's, it's, it's on. So we also see like Mexican origin of corn was split from the Mexican highlands ended up in the Andes and the corn from the Mexican lowlands ended up in the East coast of Southern America. And then they kind of met up in the middle. We're also seeing that like there's a Caribbean kind of stopover that has their own kind of domestication and their own adaptations, which makes sense because again, another specific climate that we're looking for. Yeah. Wow. How did they get it there? I guess the same way that everything else was because it's in the middle, right? Or actually, no, sorry, that's incorrect. I will say that it kind of came up from that Eastern area. Mm, and like right. across the water there, like into Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago, Tobago. Oh my God, I've always heard um, Tobago. <laughs> Tobago. Also, it's Caribbean, right? Or is it Caribbean? It's both. I hate this. I'm clearly very stupid and should know this, but I don't. I feel like it's kind of like the thing. It's like, uh, what's another word? Oh no, no, I don't remember. I want to say like aluminium, but well, no, but we that's like straight up like specific way that that's done. It's different. <laughs> it's spelled uh, like schedule. Are you like, trying to say that say schedule, schedule is correct? No, I'm just. I feel like okay. I, now I'm. I'm just. This is like a lost train of thought. But I feel like there's like certain words that I will say differently depending on the context. Oh, pasta and pasta. There yes. you go. Yes, I feel like I say pasta to my mother for some reason, but pasta with everybody else. And basil and basil. Mm, true. Even though I know one of them is the name, but still. Mm. Fun fact, my middle name is Avril, but it could also be pronounced Avril. And my mother refuses to determine which one it is. And she's the one who fucking named me. <laughs> that tracks. <laughs> Anyways. Um, so then you also have this southwestern, uh, there's expansion coming from northern mexico too that's going into the southwestern usa into then northern usa and subsequently to canada you have southeast usa so that corn belt midwest that's a hybrid of southern and northern kind of crosses of things which is interesting like all these very specific like genes that you can track and look into like where the origin of everything kind of comes yeah which we'll get into once it spreads into europe which is very cool so, nine, no, not 1942, 1492, <laughs> um, the Europeans arrived in South America. This is the Spanish. They came in. They looked around. They're like, these savages are eating a ton of corn. Gross. Seems oh, like no. it's probably badly not nutritious. And also, you know how we make bread from wheat that is supposed to represent the body of Christ? <laughs> Can't do that with corn. That's the savage grain. So they literally were like just so down on it. They didn't they didn't think it was a good idea. But as you can see from like all of these adaptations, this is a resilient little grain. Like mm-hmm. it's it's not fucking around. It's taking one look at these Spanish conquistadors. That's not right. Spanish people coming in and just fucking around and is like, I'm gonna take a boat ride, see what I can see. So yeah. gets and on board. It's like it's also just like so absurd. Just like uh savage food like the fact that you could eat something and become it's savage just, that's insane the most well insane it's food. also like all of these people are eating this like obviously it's nutritious it's like mm. literally their whole diet there's a fucking bird up there sorry to interrupt there's always birds you're constantly distracted by birds <laughs> <laughs> anyways it was really cute it's sitting on my local pipe anyways um yeah it's 
just insane. They see them eating it. Well, that's actually such an interesting side part, though, is that corn isn't obviously the most nutritional, like, thing. And, and you when, have to do so much work to be able to eat it. Yeah. But when you're looking at, like, corn being grown in Europe, there are populations that are eating it, and they're really vitamin deficient, and it's not providing the right nutrients, and they're, like, getting sick. There's actual, like, illnesses that are happening because they're eating it so much excuse me, that we're not seeing happen in South America. And it's because it's being like planted with other crops that are then eaten as well with it. So like beans or mm. I think it's lime actually that you eat them together and then you have all the nutrients that you need. It's like the full package. So it's just that they weren't executing it right. Well, the lime is what they used to like break through the, like the, the kernels. Yeah. 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 Nifty. It's so cool. It's like, who thinks of that? How do they figure it out? This is the thing. If I was a cave person or just like, you know, somebody learned, like, I wouldn't have discovered fire. I wouldn't have started painting. I wouldn't have fucking thought to, like, break open some husks. I would have just lay there trying to find as many berries as I could until I died. <laughs> just been like, oh, this is easier. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, pretty much. But mm -hmm. again, the human spirit really wants to fucking thrive. It's not happening. But anyways, um, so the Spanish then, even though they have this kind of shitty opinion of corn, they're like, eh, we'll take it with us. Why not? So we're going to take everything else. I mean, yeah, exactly. It kind of makes me like weirdly happy that some corn, like because it became so prevalent, it like actually got Europeans sick. It makes me a mm -hmm. little happy that like something from the new world got them sick. And, like fucked him over just a little bit. Oh, oh yes, oh yeah. So small victories there, courtesy of your <laughs> old friend Corn. So the first historically recorded introduction of maize to Europeans is through the Caribbean by Christopher Columbus in Spain, coming back in uh, fourteen ninety three. Jesus, this quickly spread to the Vatican. There's actually frescoes painted in Rome in fifteen seventeen of corn, which is super cool. That is uh, cute. The Caribbean corn that was brought over was adapted to warmer climates obviously so there's debate as to whether over time it made its way to northern europe like northern european regions and adapted this is happening kind of 1539 mm -hmm. germany had its first report of this region by herbalist bach um so you know there's the one thought that it had adapted to these cooler climates over the kind of quick little expansion there i think that seems unlikely the other suggested thought is that other expeditions were going on constantly to the new world and mm -hmm. one of those ones happened to be from a climate that was a little bit more similar and brought that one over um and that yeah. is supported by um molecular analysis of the maize from spain and from northern europe so the secondary introduction is it's just proven at that point then mm -hmm. um so the spanish maze more closely resembles the caribbean one which is like makes sense climates you know kind of closer that's where they went and like discovered things i don't know discovered, discovered. in i know Ugh. i'm sorry um <laughs> i will stand by the usage of it even though i know it's deeply wrong i mean that they discovered something that was new to them this corn nothing else everything yes. is garbage i shouldn't even say this i am wrong um let's see but the northern american uh varieties are more closely represented molecularly in the corn that's found in northern europe so all of that tracks yeah um let's see mid-european latitudes there's a maze that's a molecular 
uh, analysis suggests is a cross between northern and southern varieties, much as what happened in the Midwest to corn there. So that's kind of interesting. So these adaptations for like climate, you know, what's going to make the farmer happiest, which is more fucking kernels, yeah. are already happening. But we're also seeing the growing cycles adapting to the areas that they're in. So they have this like much longer growing cycle than other natural like indigenous crops there in Europe. So that's cool because they're like able to continue in these areas. And they're like, it's just so resilient. And so, so freaking resilient. It's crazy. Yeah. So even though maize was so easy to grow and it spread so far, it was really only foodstuff for animals and for peasants at this time. In northern Italy, you see them mixing ground up corn and water together as like a porridge, which they called polenta, which is now like a very traditional Italian dish based on like very foreign food, which is super cool. That is cool. We're seeing pig slop. Yep, pretty much. Um, So... (laughs) Maize was not just brought to Europe in 1493, though. It was also spread to Asia and Africa. So there's very interesting history for both of those, but I'm going to very much skim over it in a couple of sentences because that's what I'm doing. Um, so we have this new crop that's growing so abundantly, even in areas that have poor soil or excess water where they couldn't grow other crops like wheat or rice. Uh, so these areas are now having dramatic differences. They have a food surplus that leads to exponential population growth. So this is like really like it's growing the size of countries. That's how important yeah. crop is like freaking madness. All I can say this entire time is just how crazy cool <laughs> corn is. Um, and I am. Well, and you know what? Out. Like it doesn't change. It's no, the same. It's, it's the same like, now. Yeah. We still yeah. continue to love corn. Um, so it's, not only this huge cash crop for them, it's also being used in like kind of one of the worst status ways of corn is that it's like food for slaves on ships. And like, that's what they're using Mm. because it's so cheap and so easy to grow that they're just like fucking eat some corn and get on this boat and die. Which is like, and then you get into the thing where it's like, it's animal food. And so Mm -hmm. then they're feeding. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's like heartbreaking. Uh, Anyways. Then we see the African like continent being introduced as crop, crop through um, Portuguese settlers, and it becomes massive. It supersedes indigenous crops and leads to mass shifts in social organization and culinary tradition. Women's role in production, processing, and storage is now massive, which is leading to like a slow but you know slow but steady kind of reversal of not reversal but like change in gender roles there, which is super cool. Africans prepare a maize porridge called. Kepepki in Ghana, Bidia in Zaire, Sadza in Zimbabwe, Putu in Zululand, sorry, Mili in South Africa, Posho in Eastern Africa. This is consumed by millions. They have like all this culture about this grain that seems at first glance so integral to their culture to be from a completely outside source, which is so crazy cool. Yeah. So... Maize has a debated history in Asia. There are some accounts that say that they had it before Christopher Columbus's expedition in 1492, which okay. seems kind of bullshitty, but also like, <laughs> who am I to decide how you done your business? Quite, I don't know. We've, we've seen it expand all over the place already. Exactly. And one thing that is actually quite, I thought, good proof for the potential of it having been introduced to Asia before this is that in India, there's temple artworks that are sculptures that are dated to the 12th and 13th century CE that seem to depict ears of corn. 
And like looking at them, it seems incredible that they would be anything else. Like they look very, very corn-like. And this article that I read, it was suggesting all these different like potentials of what it could be. They're like, oh, maybe it's this food. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's this, that, and the other. It's like, it's corn. Like you're looking at it, you're like, (laughs) it's definitely corn, which is so weird because that's like so many years before they were supposed to have had it. So who's to explain that? That's super cool. (laughs) So... Yeah. If a sculpture says it, it has to be true. I mean, I'm sorry. That seems better proof than a lot of other things in life. I know. It's true. Um, Especially at a time when no one was writing shit down. Exactly. They're just like, eh, yeah. look, we done showed you. Yeah. So this is so cool. But then the other thing that I kind of wanted to touch on in terms of, this is like my last point, the modification of corn is like, it is so modified from its original thing that it is now, um, no longer able to self-propagate, human intervention is necessary. So the traits that made it a good crop for humans, like the stalks growing so high and having multiple like cobs on it, Mm -hmm. uh, they need the support of other stalks like in fields. I was talking to Jenna actually, and she's like, I was looking up how to grow corn at home, but all the things that I read said you had to plant like six rows of it because it needs that to survive. Like you can't- It's just gonna like fall down otherwise? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like all the like little kernels are so like in there they can't, like, come out and, like, fly away and do their thing. Like, because otherwise farmers would be losing their crops. Yeah. So, basically, all I've told you is a little bit about where it came from and a little bit where it goes. Mostly, I think I've just said how crazy cool it is, which I stand by that statement. So, there you go. That's that's my portion of this history. Okay, cool. Well, now I'm going to basically, kind of like with ice cream, I'm going to tell you the story from this one book that I read half of. Perfect. Uh, that's called Midwest Maze. It's by Cynthia Clampett. And like, and would you like to tell us the most controversial thing oh, about her? No, I'm gonna get there. Okay. I'm gonna get here. I don't <laughs> agree with a lot of what she says. <laughs> Perfect. Um, but you know what? That's you know, it's fun to read, and just like you know, sometimes I like reading a book and being like, mm, you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> So anyway, we're going to start with uh, the Midwest and the Corn Belt, which is, you know, because that's the top 10 corn producing states are all in the Midwest. The U.S. produces the most corn in the world. Because. Because America. (laughs) Um, Is this corn that they're producing, is it mainly for, or maybe you'll get into this, but is it food stuff mainly or is it? We're going to. Oh. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh. I'll wait for the dramatic reveal. (laughs) So basically, corn is deeply woven into the culture and identity of the Midwest and of into it like America in total. Mm -hmm. So Native Americans had been planting corn in the area around the Great Lakes for centuries before the arrival of European colonizers. Obviously. I'm gonna ask another dumb question, but where are the Great Lakes? Like the east? Okay, because for some Great Lakes. Yeah, okay. We have Great Lakes. Yeah, like those are the Great Lakes we're talking about? Yes. Okay, I was just like, that seems a little like (laughs) northeastern-y for what I assumed the Corn Belt to be. And like, I only, anyways, please continue. Well, okay, so I think, but like, that's what, that's what, that's where the Native Americans were planting the corn originally, because it's like super fertile, it's like really like rich soil, so that's where they like planted it, and then kind of like, sort of migratory, I don't know. I didn't really look into this, I should have. I mostly got into like the commodity side (laughs) yes but basically I think what what happens is that Europeans then 
like and the colonizers and then like later Americans, North Americans in general, just took it and planted it anywhere they could because it grows so well. So like the Corn Belt is a little bit lower than that original Great Lakes mm-hmm. region, but that's kind of like where it started. And I suppose maybe that's just because like that's the land that they had access to and it was like cheap and whatever. You could just do whatever you wanted. Yes. Well, so that's like where the first settlements were. We're like in that like East Coast kind of area. And then mm. we have the War of 1812. <laughs> which which... <sighs> literally almost made me like I was 10 pages into research and like threw my computer on the floor because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. But Cynthia Clampett very firmly asserts that the Americans won the War of 1812. And I'm sorry that I know that there are historians that believe that this is true, but the War of 1812 was a huge waste of time and a stalemate at best. Also, like, isn't the continued existence of the fucking country of Canada proof that it they didn't win? Because, like, if they had have won the War of 1812, Canada would be America. Yes. Yes. So that seems pretty solid evidence. It's also just like in like doing a brief Wikipedia of the War of 1812. It's hilarious to read how like Britain, who the Americans supposedly beat, (laughs) just like don't even like mention the War of 1812. They're like, what? It's like, oh, yeah, that time when we were like fighting Napoleon. And then America was like, like started some shit (laughs) for like three years. So anyway, I just I. Because of this one statement, I I take a lot of what she says with a grain of salt. So now you know that as well. So now you know my bias on this author's bias. Anyway, the desire for expansion, such as the War of 1812, and ownership of quote-unquote cornland propelled Western expansion into the Western United States. Hmm. Corn was the perfect crop for small farms because one ear of corn can provide nearly half a pound of grain and wheat by contrast requires a hundred ears to produce that much. So it's like, makes sense. Just super quick and easy, super quick and easy. And like, if you're just like a little family and you're starting out as you're moving West, you only need to plant like a couple rows of corn and you can basically feed yourself and your animals. Pro rant or plant plant. Okay, I heard pro-rant, and I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, my vocabulary is getting so weak. Like, I was I'm just, like, like, slurring my speech. It's, like, <laughs> noon. <laughs> I haven't had enough coffee. I don't know. Anyway. Sorry, please so, continue. No, so then, yes, corn is integral to the American economy because it can produce so much. So, basically, I'm just skipping over all this because, again, could not read the rest of that one section on uh-huh. the Midwest. <laughs> um. U.S. is the biggest corn exporter in the world. And then again, the book goes into a little bit of an American savior uh, complex. (laughs) The consequences (laughs) of corn in the Midwest as an ability to feed the world. Which, sure, yeah, great. Let's, Let's produce tons and, like, feed everyone. That would be great. Anyway, in the early years of corn as a commodity, the fact that it yielded so much product actually led to its constant devaluation, especially in comparison to cotton or wheat. Uh, which were like the big yeah again that podcast that i listened to which was 1619 in case anyone wants Mm. to listen to it because it was great highly recommend um they were talking about how cotton was like basically the oil of the day yeah like just exactly such a massive crop or such a massive industry sorry well but actually what it is is the corn of its day so oh yeah 
So corn, you know, grew everywhere. It was like super abundant, which meant that like there's no scarcity. And also they didn't really know what to do with it. Like it was mostly just kind of like livestock feed at this time. Mm -hmm. And also if it was considered a food, it was like a poor man's plant. As we said before, it was... Mm -hmm. An essential People part of eating it, which is so weird because it's so yummy. I know, I know. Um, but after the American Civil War and the restructuring of the Southern economy away from cotton, corn began to amass a greater value, both in the Southern diet and more slowly in the commodities market. That's right. I read an article about stocks. <laughs> oh, horrible. It was fine. Um, but corn, so corn became a true commodity in and of itself in 1910. Uh, that year, America produced about 70 million tons of corn. Wow. Which yeah, it's like unfathomable. I can't uh, even visualize how much that is. No, like, I don't know. I got no idea. No, none. Uh, but between 50 and 80% of that was designated as animal feed. A very small percentage was sold on the international market because Europe was still mostly interested in wheat. Um, but pretty much like every other foodstuff we've covered, World War I and the shortages it caused led to drastic changes for corn, for the best, actually, in this instance. Hmm. So wheat had been set aside for troops overseas, leaving very little for those at home. And the scarcity was further exacerbated by hoarders, which... You know, <laughs> which we've seen very we've recently. Seen all about. So yeah, wheat prices totally skyrocketed and corn started to look more appealing and gain popularity in the human diet is what i wrote a human so, diet yes human diet. um after the war wheat remained fairly regulated still so people who were like trading in these stocks got excited about corn as a like more lucrative market because it's like a lot more volatile and like cheaper hmm. and then all of a sudden 1931 any stock is sorry just to interrupt i have no idea what that is I don't, I don't know. I don't right. know. Well, but basically, later. by 1931, corn had snuck up and deposed wheat as market king. <laughs> so now corn, like since literally the 30s, has been mega business. Like it's huge. So that government, tracks. Yeah. So government, uh, the American government was like totally intervening in agriculture for like a while, especially like, with the 30s. Like we've got the Dust Bowl and the Depression. So government's like really trying to promote agriculture. And that further developed big corn. Uh, the big industry of this podcast today, big corn. Yes. So they had like subsidies and price supports. And so that's like massive agricultural growth developed in the interwar period. Corn was growing so fast because that's what it does. And it was seen as a miracle crop. And everyone wanted to vote to devote more and more land to it, especially if they were going to get tax breaks for doing so. Oh, they were getting full tax breaks for growing corn. Okay, well that like makes sense, but what a yeah, wild because the government's thing. like, yeah, grow more, like just grow shit. I think that they were giving tax breaks to anyone who was growing anything, but corn was so like grew so well and was so like useful and was like all of a sudden getting like a huge share in the market. Like you could sell it for a lot. It also seems like one of those things that's pretty cheap to start out with. If mm -hmm. that like I don't know. How true I think that so. is. But you probably just need like, eh, I got like a handful of kernels, throw them in the ground, we get to go. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so basically because of this, like, and corn was so cheap that like farmers stopped feeding cattle with grass in pastures 
and instead move them into feedlots where they just like dump the corn like slop in and then Mm -hmm. chickens were raised in factories instead of farms and the land that all of these animals used to take place was just turned into like acres and acres of cornfields that's so sad all the poor chickens getting displaced for these corn stalks yeah corn is to blame corn Corn is to blame but then it's also so like messed up too because it's like you're literally the animals that used to live on that land is being displaced so that you can grow the food to feed them what a weird cycle Mm -hmm. also read a thing that like um china like they were producing like a quarter more corn than they ever were because people were eating so much more meat because they needed to like actually feed the meat something because Uh like as the population got wealthier they wanted more meat subsequently they needed more feed so their corn just like it just kept going up and up yeah well that's the same kind of thing that's happening here wild so yeah so corn is just like becoming a huge money maker and a cornerstone of the u.s economy so lots and lots of research and money has gone into maintaining the crop so if we want to like take a fun little trip to 1850s when the study of genetics was born, when a Czech monk named Gregor Mendel began experimenting with inherited traits in plants. I'm obsessed with this guy. I know, he's just like hanging out. Just at a monastery. Yeah, just like in a monastery. I don't know. It's <laughs> like, what happens if I do this? <sighs> Ugh, I love it. Um, But his research didn't spread to North America for, like, a couple more decades. But when it did, geneticists immediately set their sights on corn with the main goal of making crops more uniform, more reliable, and more abundant. Because even though corn grows so well, it's like, you if you can make it grow better... You make more cash. Uh, So eventually they achieved this by hybridizing, which is kind of what people had been doing accidentally for years. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, Although like, I would suggest that they weren't doing it accidentally. I would suggest that there was, like, consistently uh, thought grown into it. Yeah, grown but I think... <laughs> <laughs> They're so corny. Get out. How uh, has that not been used yet? It's 43 minutes know. in. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Anyways. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so, they've been kind of, like, playing around with corn's genetics, like, trying to mix and match. But they hadn't been, like, super successful, and they weren't... Like, this was the first time that, like, there was actually sort of a lot of money and research being put actively into breeding corn to be like produce a certain type of kernel or ear. Hmm. Uh, so in the early 1900s, it became, yes, a lucrative science, like I said. So quickly the idea of inbreeding inbred maize took off. Delicious. So it's like, basically there's some guys that's like, so I know that we've been like, breeding this one corn with this other corn to like inbreed it but what if we inbreed the inbreds which is why you can't like modern corn doesn't grow on its own like you need seeds which seems like a real like corn belt kind of idea no offense to the corn belt folk it's yeah i mean like that's this is why they have like seed banks and then so you have to pay coolest things ever well yes but it's basically so at this point like People didn't mind the fact that it's like, unlike other crops, they had to literally pay for seeds to grow corn because it was so lucrative. It's like, yeah, that's just like the cost of like doing business. It's like, I have to like basically buy the seeds. Do you have to buy them like every single, like, okay, if you want to grow one stalk of corn, is it one seed for that kind of thing? So you buy like 
like a bazillion I... seeds and then you grow like a, and then you get a bunch of your own I... corn for it so it's like a pretty great return on your investment still I that would make sense so. right i think so okay second question if you don't mind Please. um what are they like i get the kind of ideas of like this is what we're breeding for in these plants but is it like mm-hmm exclusively to make it a hardier product is it to make it the growing cycle longer is it to do make the like sugar content higher like the starches like what are it they- is it is specifically to make the ears longer fatter and more uniform and with oh, like sorry, I missed that. chubby kernels no, no no that was literally my next bullet point oh my bad <laughs> no it's perfect so and, and then also like to grow like super like well like and like you said like they wanted them to be able to be so packed because then you can grow more mm-hmm. they really are like the most space-saving crop of all though because like they literally just go straight up yeah wild but yeah so it's actually really cool so it's like they by producing these like super uniform ears they were actually facilitating mechanical harvesting before they even knew that mechanical harvesting was going to be a thing damn so by the time that like we've got machines that can just pick all the corn and do the harvest for you, it's like, oh yeah, perfect. Like everything's the same, so we can just uh go so just like do it. we thought ahead, don't worry guys. Or yes. controversially, did the thing get designed with like this kind of crop in mind because corn was so massively important? Oh and they just kind e- of like, Yes. Okay. I mean probably. But I think it made it like way easier. Like if you think about like a I'm tr- I don't even know. Just like, like in a- general, any kind of like picking of things, it's easiest yeah. if it's the same. Yes, exactly. It just like autom- like it sped up the process, I yeah. think. Hmm. So apparently, according to Cynthia Clampett, 95% of all corn grown in the U.S. is hybrid corn, which makes sense. because I would have just- thought it was fully 100% actually. Like, what is that 5% of corn? Where is that? Is that the artisanal corn only sold at, like, weird farmer's markets? Yes. Because if so, I would like to go. Yeah, that'd be nice. Uh, so there are people who definitely argue that there's quality that's been lost with the hybridized corn. Because it's, like, you Obviously know. Obviously there is, yeah. Yeah. This was, like, taste as well as nutritive value seems to have been sacrificed in favor of, like, a high yield. Which, duh, that's always how it goes. Yeah, if there's a general theme about food in the world, it's like, it was good, then we needed more of it, so we made it shittier. Yeah. Yeah. Someone write that down, that's the answer, I told that's, you there. That's the tag line of this podcast. Um, organic corn farmers, so I guess they're the 5% mm-hmm. that are hoping to put the taste and health benefits back in corn, uh, but it's obviously like super labor intensive. They're doing a lot of like crop rotation, which just like that's the other thing is like crop rotation is so necessary for corn. And like, are you going to talk more about that? Um, Please do. I should, but like, I wasn't really. It's mm. mostly just like they they do still rotate the crops between corn and soybeans. Mm-hmm. But like a lot of the organic farmers are like, it's not enough. Like the soil needs time to like rest and like be fallow you need like longer periods of time just like the insects and like weeds are able to adapt like it's too short of a season to just like switch one to one with corn and soybeans yeah i was reading about how where is it maybe i have it up still Eh, no it's something like in 
like again this is this article it was from 2015 talking about uh china and how they were like increasing the production of it and even replacing like some rice crops with Mm. corn crops and they're saying like all this extra fertilizer has to go into the ground for it but apparently it's still better for like the water because it doesn't leach out as badly so the water in Mm. beijing is cleaner because they've been producing so much more corn instead of rice and it also the rice cultivation is like Nah. <laughs> yeah um but also like it's the amount of like co2 and nitrogen and stuff like that is getting super mm. fucked up because of all these different like intense like non-rotation or like weird changes into like these natural crops yeah well i mean i just i could go into like how like all of the mm. ways that, like chemical fertilizers and like like literally like, the history of insecticides and weed killers and like all of that shit but it's just like so much but nobody wants to throw up next time they eat corn like that's just nasty it's just like i'd rather live in mystery everything has it and it's like that's just the cost of like getting food in today's society just like always but i think it, it's definitely one of those things like even if you're buying organic corn like there's still like certain pesticides that are allowed and isn't that so interesting like the regulation on food is so fascinating Mm -hmm. like we're allowed to call things organic we're allowed to say like oh made without like whatever all of these like additives and stuff but you're allowed like a specific percentage of it and it's still not alive like that's so crazy to me yeah well I mean like there are certain like like natural fertilizers and weed killers and insecticides like there's Mm -hmm. In the article I was reading, like, tobacco is often used. Oh. Which is, like, kind of cool because it's, like, it's got nicotine in it, which is literally toxic. (laughs) So it kills all, like, the bugs. Um, But then people are like, but then we're going to get the nicotine. and uh, So even that's not good enough for some people, which, I mean... It's kind of like when people say, like, oh, this is sulfate-free wine. It's like, no, that's a naturally occurring product, but thanks so much for coming out, you absolute <laughs> fucktards. Oh, uh, the buzzwords, the buzzwords. Yes. Speaking of buzzwords, hmm. GMOs. GMOs. So, yes, uh, science, science, science. Is that the but website I'm... you used? No, that's me just <laughs> mulling over how I'm not going to talk about how GMOs work and what Perfect. they are. Because... We've already had so m- I've said genome and like molecular analysis. Like we're way too deep into science already in this. It's just like, look, I'm just here to like not talk about science. <laughs> to just like scream yeah. about the War of 1812. Like, That's pretty much the theme of this episode today. The War of uh, 1812. Oh yes. There's also a guy that I'm very excited to talk about later. Please but continue. That's, yes. Okay, anyway. So yes, as everyone is aware, there is so much debate about whether or not GMOs are good or bad or neutral. Which there is. What I thought yeah. we were just like a hundred percent like no GMOs. Maybe I'm like in only hearing one camp. Oh my goodness! I think you are. I mean, because like you could like it, everything's genetically like what does genetically modified mean? Like you've got to kind of get into like the existential like philosophy of what it is like. Like, are we corn already have been genetically modified? Yes. Like, all of the like everything we've just discussed. Yes. yes. Anyways, continue. Yes. But specifically in this term, it's like they're genetically like modifying it to be resistant to like specific insects and herbicides. It's crazy how people are smart enough to do that. I know. Like, can I you know. imagine that's your job? You're just like, I'm just I'm just gonna like 
modify corn. <laughs> Jenna was talking to me about how she was it her probably had this teacher who was a math teacher, but he used to be like an in what's the one for insect guy? Uh, Anyways, an insect guy, and he like designed there were like these flies in this like area and they were just like fucking up all these plants and so they genetically modified or like engineered this other like really hot sexy fly <laughs> that was sterile yeah so that they would go and mate with all the female flies and then there wouldn't be because the female flies died after mating so then they'd die off and there would be no offspring because they were sterile Yep, that's a classic technique. But imagine designing a sexy, sterile fly. It's just like, like what'd you I do at work today? Hmm. Killed the species. <laughs> <laughs> All right, please continue. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, no. Okay, well, basically, the thing that is, like, an actual, like, legitimate concern, not to say that there's not other legitimate concerns about GMO, but, like, the biggest one, especially, like, in my mind is the danger of relying on a single set of genes for an entire crop, like monoculture is yeah. what it is. Because it, when everything is the same, one like blight or disease or anything can just like destroy everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the thing that happens like all the time, like the freaking potato famine. <laughs> like, <laughs> RIP. Yes. I feel like there's like a lot of like really dark political stuff in the potato famine. Yeah, we we should look more into that, but that's a yeah, whole other potatoes. Tater, tater. Potatoes. Uh so yes, anyway. Um just like specifically thinking about in Oaxaca, Mexico, where corn is like from Corn is King. Corn is king. Uh GMO corn is threatening to cross pollinate some of the oldest corn varieties out of existence. That's so mean. But like People are aware of it. Like, there's researchers that are on it. Okay, but still, good. like, it is like a leg- it's a very legitimate concern that. So it's like not only will the GMO corn potentially like be self-destructive in case like its one weakness could end the entire food systems of the world, mm-hmm. but it's also yeah, it's gonna like take over you know like the little guys and keep diversity. But uh, people are people are dealing with this apparently. <laughs> Thank goodness. Like maintaining some kind of like seed diversity in the seed banks. So again, science, science, science. Science, science, science. Thank God for seed banks. Also, that's like, I don't know. Can you imagine like just having to go out to like your job every day was like, I'm just going to go and like attempt to control the invasive species of corn. (laughs) Like what a weird time. Anywho. I just, well, people who do invasive species like research in general so cool so cool invasive species are like the scariest thing because you know what i think the scariest bit about it is they don't know that they're an invasive species they're just hanging out someone else brought there they're just trying to live their life they're just doing their thing and they happen to be good at it oh but then they're that's bad yeah it's real bad i mean like they're doing well in terms of like they're thriving not doing well in terms of like their impact on their world but again humans the invasive species blah 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 I mean, yes. White man, the invasive species. Oh, hashtag you are not wrong. Uh, Okay, so back to corn, the ultimate white man. (laughs) The new tagline Um, for corn. Corn, the ultimate white man. (laughs) I mean, it is, because here's the thing. okay now i was i was gonna tie it in i had a great segue but then i lost it basically okay yes going back to chemicals fertilizers 
corn is full of it because we have to sustain the massive yields necessary because corn and corn derivatives are literally in everything. Yeah. And because it's in everything, we need to keep the price of corn down and therefore the price of everything else down. I mean, theoretically, but it's just like if corn prices went up, the prices of like almost all food stuff. So yes, let's talk about things that corn's in. Please do. Uh, so because corn is such a fast-growing, bountiful crop, Americans have long been looking for ways to transform it into a marketable commodity. So feeding animals was, of course, the first way that we did this. Mm-hmm. Um, as we've talked about before, much of corn's value up until the late 19th century was dependent on its use as feed for livestock. Pigs and cows were fattened up with corn right before slaughter. R.I.P. I know. And then there's something called the corn pig cycle, which is where farmers had to make the decision whether to raise pigs or sell corn based on like the current prices. And there's like all of these expressions of like five pounds of corn is equal to one pound on the hoof. I feel like one pound on the hoof is a phrase that's used without the corn part. Like still, I feel like I've heard that. I think it is. Yes. Wild. There's also this quote that says, so it's quote, what is a hog but 15 or 20 bushels of corn on four legs? <laughs> the visual. It's striking. <laughs> it's just like corn. This entire time that we're talking about like big corn, all I've been picturing in my mind has just been like an ear of corn just like smoking a cigarette and looking Man, real With a monocle? Name. Yes. Yes. They always have monocles. Yeah. It's like Mr. Peanut, but a corn. Yeah, that's fair. So yes, and again, kind of as I mentioned before, the increase in American livestock had a cyclical relation to the increase in corn growth and like vice versa. Again, like you're talking about with China, mm-hmm. more animals equals more corn equals more animals. Uh, so another way, distilling Heck is a yeah. great way to transform corn. Uh, much of the alcohol made in the United States is and was liquid corn, which made sense because Blessed. weighed less, it kept longer and it sold for more and like had a huge market, obviously. And this is before corn became like a big deal on its own. Oh, so this uh, is still kind of like the time period where it's mostly being used for feed. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So this oh. is okay. So like, I've kind of like backtracked now with like things. So like originally when people were like, what the fuck do we do with all this corn? We've got so <laughs> much of it. Like, it's gotta be good for something. So like, well, we can feed the animals. And it's like, well, maybe we can make booze out of it. Cause like, why not? And also like, as I said, they've probably been doing that before. There's like, people just look at a plant and are like, let's get fucked up. Yeah. Oh, yes. The like early American colonists and like early, like were so drunk, just like drunk all the time. I don't think I like wrote down the stats because I was just like, la, 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 la. no, I didn't. But it's just like super drunk. But like that pretty much resonates through every single like decision that was made and every single thing that went down like it just seems like everyone was drunk all the time yeah i mean well that's why like prohibition happened because people are like um guys take a break (laughs) it's like after you have a really really busy like december and you're like oh fuck january we're not drinking for the entire month but yes of course you do of course you do because prohibition doesn't work (laughs) exactly uh, okay, so early colonists drank beer made from fermented blue and black corn, which sounds gross. I you can't know, I'm tell. not the hugest beer drinker anyway, so it feels like it's gross to me, but, like, I'd try it. 
Yes. I'd try I'd try anything twice. <laughs> exactly. The Emily Grayson motto. Uh, so then around 1620, a gentleman pensioner named Captain George Thorpe began distilling corn liquor, moonshine, in Virginia. And he wrote, quote, I have found a way to make so good a drink of Indian corn as I protest I have diverse times refused to drink good strong English beer and chosen to drink fat. Well, what a high compliment. Just like, he just of loved it. Of course you want moonshine over beer, dumbass. <laughs> like corn beer or British beer. Yeah. Uh, and like, I don't think, like he wasn't the only one doing it. Like everyone was like playing around with distilling just like literally anything they could find. Yeah. Uh, but uh, corn whiskey took a bit of a backseat for a while and rum took over as the drink of the colonies for a while until the American Re- Revolution which limited access to foreign sugar imports and westward expansion meant moving away from New England rum distillers. So yeah, there's so much corn in the West, nothing else to do that making corn whiskey became quote, both practical and patriotic. That's exactly how I want to demonstrate my patriotism by getting absolutely shit canned. Shittered. Uh, yes. I love that. I wish that it was patriotic for us to get drunk still. I don't think you do. No, you're right. It would be anarchy. I want to be the only drunk. It's just safer for drunk me that alone? way. Drunk alone? No, I just mean like I'd rather everyone else be in like their right mind and I'll just so have they like, can, like pick you up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, by the early 1800s, thousands of gallons of whiskey were being produced in the United States. <laughs> And I mean, okay, we should never forget that water at this time was yep, not plastic. even remotely clean. Coffee and tea were expensive, and alcohol was seen as a cure-all that doctors would prescribe to patients for, like, literally anything. Oh, my favorite. Yep. That was, like, the time period of all the, like, weird tinctures, and it's like, I don't know, throw some booze and some, like, cocaine in there and hope for the best. It's like, eh. But <sighs> this is also a time when doctors were, like, also barbers, so... Just, you always gotta have a side hustle, hey? <laughs> Please continue. Yes. That's kind of all I have with, like, booze. Because then, like, you just get into bourbon, and then it's like, well, I mean, we're talking about corn. We can talk about bourbon and, like, whiskey another time. This is a food podcast. Yeah. You don't keep your bourbon in your pantry. You keep it in your bar cart like a civilized adult. <laughs> exactly. So there. All right. So, now we're going to talk about the extremely exciting and kind of grossly termed invention of wet milling. It is a gross term. Thank you for that. It's kind of gross. Yeah. So, like, obviously, okay, dry milling, which is just normal milling, which, like, is when you have your stones and you grind it up the grain and you get flowers and stuff. Um, But wet milling was a very exciting way that transformed corn and one of the reasons that it is found in so many diverse products today, basically what it does is it allowed us to get cornstarch. Oh. At least, like, in the beginning. Yeah, so the kernels are soaked in an alkali substance, like, really similar to how the, like, like native Mexicans... Would have gotten the husks. The in- yeah, like, how yeah, the yeah. indigenous people, like, they got the maize 
Um, so yeah, you like boil it and I don't know. Do some science, science, science. And it makes it super easy to separate pure starch from the rest of the grain. Uh, Originally, cornstarch was just used for laundry to, like, make your collars nice and stiff. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, starched shirts. Oh, like starch shirts. Oh, but it was cornstarch. I don't know what kind of starch I thought it was. I thought there was just a starch. I mean, it's, like, not, like, necessarily the same cornstarch as you'd use in baking, but... um, But, like, from corn. Yeah, exactly. Wild. Uh, So by 1950, people were using it in foods. Uh, Cornstarch manufacture quickly became a really big business because it was, uh, but it was just the first corn miracle unlocked by wet milling. (laughs) Many to come. Yeah. 1966, dextrose was produced, or mm, 1966, 1866. 1866. 1860. In 1866, dextrose was produced by breaking down cornstarch. So again, science, science, science. Starch is just a string of sugars. And it's you can basically break it down into glucose and dextrose and And now you got just, all these fun little additives. Just well, toss you know what there. you get? What? It's high fructose corn syrup. My favorite. Everyone's favorite. Because North Americans love sugar more than we are able to produce it and import from sugar canes and sugar beets. So corn, as has been said many times, is cheap and very available. Just the real wonder crop. Yeah. So with so high fructose corn syrup was first discovered actually in Japan in the 60s. Oh, cool. Yeah. So they discovered an enzyme that could break down corn's glucose into the much sweeter molecule of fructose. Hmm. Um, and then basically like make a super sweet syrup of it. And it's was like immediately put into like soft drinks and sugary substitutes and like everything. Look on the packet on the, like an ingredients package of literally anything. Yeah. I was going to say, I bet you that's in every single thing in my cupboard right now. Yeah. <laughs> anything that has like sweetness. So I'm actually going to go check that after this. Yeah, you should. So there's like, of course, again, lots of debate about whether or not it is worse for our health than normal sugar, but like too much sweetener of any kind is bad. So. Yep. It's the fucking butter basil argument all over again. Yes, Get it is. Uh, okay. But so that's all coming from the starch side and corn is uh, like 70% starch. I should have written that fact down, but I didn't. I think that's how much it is, approximately. Mostly starch. Yeah. Lots of starch. But there's also, like, other parts. So, in the eighteen late 1800s, processors started experimenting by uh, with extracting oil from the, the germ mm-hmm. of the kernel. And wet milling made it way easier to extract corn oil because you can get that super pure separation between the starch and the germ. And the corn oil was quickly, like, super popular with home cooks. But then it was also used into the 20th century to make soap, paint, linoleum, creams, salves, synthetic rubber, and varnished. I love it. And the list goes on. (laughs) It always creeps me out when there's a product where you're like, you can use it in lotions and creams, or you can use it for linoleum. It's like the classic like seventies SNL scan- sketch of like new shimmer. It's a dessert topping. No, it's a floor wax. No, <laughs> dessert topping. 
Speaking of SNL, I just started watching 30 Rock. Very excited. Keep you posted. <laughs> Great. Keeping up with the times. Yeah. I'm only like a decade behind. Anyways. Based. Great. I've heard, I don't know, mixed reviews? Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <Let's>... <laughs> 2020, the year of watching mediocre television from like decades ago. That's my every year, really. That's fine. I still just like watch Murder, She Wrote, which I've even seen thousands of times. I'll have to get to that eventually. You don't. You really don't. Hmm. Anywho. Okay. So so those are like the early, like, look at all the things we can break corn down into and like doing some fun, like molecular biology, I, I guess, chemistry. Uh, but today, corn uh, is broken down into so many different compounds and starches and vitamins to be used in everything. So some of the corn products found on ingredient on ingredients labels may be listed as uh, high fructose corn syrup, also called isoglucose, starch, modified or unmodified, lecithin, monoglycerides, diglycerides, caramel color, citric acid, fructose, glucose, maltodextrin, ascorbic acid, dextrose, lactic acid, lysine, maltose, MSG monosodium glutamate and xanthan gum all of those are derived from I didn't corn. realize corn was msg hey damn get, yeah that's a very disturbing list it's a super long list wow corn the wonder food okay well speaking of wonder food let's talk about some super fun corn products that are slightly more recognizable Excellent, yes corn flakes oh corn flakes <laughs> Every highly religious person's favorite cereal, is that not correct? It is. Well, yes. So Dr. John Harvey Kellogg ran the very fashionable Battle Creek Sanitarium in Michigan in 1876. (laughs) Kellogg was a vegetarian and Seventh-day Adventist who believed that a diet of whole grains could help cure the body and mind. He and his brother, uh... Will Kellogg developed cornflakes as an economical way to feed these whole grains to his their patients. Uh, so that was like a fun thing that they're just making in the sanitarium. It's just like eat a bowl of cornflakes; it will cure your depression. <laughs> <laughs> but then a former patient, Charles W. Post, ran with the idea and started marketing his own cereals. And then the Kellogg brothers were like, "Well, rude." And they turned their popular sanitarium breakfast available to all. And the cereal industry was born. Great. That sounds <laughs> awesome. Just like a bowl of dry corn products. Here's the thing. I love cornflakes. Mm. They're too structurally thin for me because they get too soggy too quick. That's oh, see, well, I mean, I don't put milk in my cereal. Yes, yes, yes. Also, aren't cornflakes supposed to stop you from masturbating? Like, wasn't that part of, like, the appeal of them to, like, Christian audiences? Oh. I feel like that was a thing maybe. I Maybe. I feel like I have also heard that. But it's also, like, just kind of interesting to look back into, like, a lo- like, mo- like, all cereals and then things like graham crackers and, like, a lot of those sort of, like, health foods were all started by, like kind of like weirdly like new age religious like (laughs) health gurus in the 1900s what a fascinating combination of characteristics in one person just like i'm really into health and religion and also corn 
I know it's like, is there a goop cereal out there yet? How was Gwyneth Paltrow not made a goop cereal? Gwyneth, if you can hear me, we need this. It's like a laxative cereal. It costs forty dollars a box. It costs forty dollars an ounce. <laughs> Can't you get cheaper cocaine than that? Like, Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't. No, me either. That's why I asked. But, like, I'm pretty sure. Here, let's Google how much is an ounce of cocaine. Oh, my God. Um, the government's going to come after you. I hope they do come at me. Just, like, because they're concerned. I'm a white woman. I have nothing to fear from the police. Oh, Google wants to know your location. <laughs> Let's see. Cocaine retail prices. Retail? I can't even read this. This chart's too small. Daily Hive. This is how much cocaine has been seized in the GTA in 2016. That's not what That's I want not either. What I want to know. Chart. The street price of a gram of cocaine. Oh my god, in Finland it's $112. Let's see. Scandinavia has like outrageous markups on things. Ain't it the truth? Oh, United States $96 for a gram. How much is an ounce versus a gram? I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. Well, you've got some of the information now. You're welcome. So there you go, kids. Goop cereal is going to be more expensive than cocaine. Maybe. <laughs> or not. Who knows? Gwyneth, get back to us. Uh, um, okay. So, let's talk about popcorn. Love. I love popcorn. I love popcorn. It's probably one of the best snack foods. I would it say. It is. Would you like to hear the entire origin of it? Yes, please do. Okay, so those tales of early like First Nations people giving pilgrims popcorn balls made with maple syrup are granted according to Cynthia Clampett, who thinks America won the War of 1812, <laughs> apocryphal. However, there is like no archaeological evidence of popcorn in early settlements. If they did eat anything like popcorn-like, it would have been something called parched corn, which is more like a corn nut, which are delicious. I love a corn nut. Not for me, but anyways. Yeah, so that's flint corn heated until it toasts and cracks open. Cool. Pop Popcorn, or at least corn that pops, uh, is some of the oldest maize, or is part of some of the oldest maize genuses. Teosint, as we've been talking about, the progenitor of all maize varieties, pops. You can pop teosint. We should do that. I wonder where you would get access to that. I don't know. Because it's like, I think it's still just growing in Mexico in the wild. Probably. Are we going to Mexico now? Maybe. Well, all right then. Uh, So the scientific name for popcorn is... I love that it has a scientific name so much. Well, because it's a variety. Like, it's an actual thing. So it's... Oh, no, my Latin. Zia maize Everta? Yeah, that sounds right. So Everta specifically refers to the characteristic tendency of popcorn's endosperm to turn inside out. Oh. Yeah. 
So archaeologists found popcorn varieties that were over 4,000 years old, and those same varieties, like, or they found this in Mexico, Mm -hmm. and then they found that the same varieties were still being grown in Mexico up until at least the 50s. Or until big corn gets there. Yes. True, true, true. Uh, But despite being such an ancient grain, popcorn didn't become, like, a thing in the U.S. until the 1880s. Hmm. Up to... And even throughout the 1800s, Americans were still trying to figure out how to eat it. <laughs> like, that's the thing. It's like, how do you get it to pop? Like, it's kind of a, it's actually like sort of tricky. Yeah, I suppose. So they'd hold wire baskets over an open fire while trying to move it fast enough to not totally burn the kernels. <laughs> they had just like straight up threw the kernels into coals, hoping to grab the popped corn before it burst into flames. <laughs> riskiest food of the day it's just like i i don't it just seems so insane uh they also would fry them in lard and then skim like the popcorn that floated to the top off and just like eat that Ooh, disgusting yeah it's just gonna be too oily yeah so yeah so like obviously these were like terrible methods but popcorn was so like magical and fun that people kept trying to, quote, look for ways of popping corn without burning either the corn or the people doing the popping. (laughs) (laughs) Admirable pursuits all around. Yes. So this was obviously made, like, more possible by with the advent of wood-burning stoves instead of just, like, cooking over open flames. So in the late 1800s, we see recipes for popcorn popping up. thank you for laughing um so yeah that's where we get popcorn balls like rolled in syrup popcorn was served instead of croutons on soups or salads oh i love that i would totally eat that popcorn in a soup would be delicious uh oh there's also like a pudding made with finely ground popped corn into that as well yeah so popcorn was mostly grown in domestic gardens Young sons would practice farming by taking care of the family plot of popcorn and then selling the surplus to neighbors at the local store. That's so cute. I know. Because it's like easy to grow and you could just like have your little plot and just like, I'm just going to grow my own popcorn. She's like, look, daddy, I grew it. I know. And they're like, good. Like now you know how to like raise a farm. Oh, I'm Go this out and marry your ever. neighbor at 13. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say cousin, and I was like, also accurate. Thank you. Mm. Made a lot of incest jokes about the Midwest Corn Belt, and I'm sorry about that. That's, Probably yeah. very nice people. Hashtag not all Corn Belts. <laughs> <laughs> but most Corn Belts. <laughs> now I just want a belt with corn on it. That would be lovely. Well, those like I hope you're going to talk about popcorn garlands because how cute are they? I literally wasn't, but yes, we could. Well, no, I don't have anything to say besides how cute they are, and popcorn also that like I've never made one, but I don't think that they would last because I know that myself I would just go and eat the popcorn off the tree. Yeah, I guess that's the point. I just feel like that gets so stale so fast. Yeah, I know. I would still eat it and, like, we'd string it up there and I'd be like, "Mm -mm, everybody turn around. It's my time now. Uh, uh, Okay, so shortly after the Civil War, popcorn Mm -hmm. stands offering popcorn balls or fresh popped corn took up residence in Chicago. Then in 1871, 
just after the Great Chicago Fire, apparently. <laughs> German expats and brothers Frederick and Louis Ruckheim began a successful candy and popcorn business. Mm. Then in 1896, with the help of steam-powered poppers, the Ruckheim brothers started coating popcorn and peanuts in molasses to create Cracker Jacks. Oh, <laughs> I'm just like so. I'm just like everything with popcorn seems adorable and like it's like a very like and I know this is the wrong use of the term but like you call it kind of like visual in my mind. It is like it's so nostalgic and I think again like this is all coming from Cynthia Clampett. So she's got a very specific view and I could have looked into like other popcorn things like problematized but it's like you know what we're just this is just how it is. Okay so now here we are. 1893, the man with one of the most phonetically unfortunate names I have ever heard. <laughs> Charles Creeters. C. Creeters. Secreters. C. Creeters. <laughs> Did he decide to put butter on the popcorn? No, he, was he invented it. Do you get it? Sorry. That Here's was a the thing. Rough he did. He invented a machine that could pop butter and salt corn. It's like the classic little like popcorn machines, like the little like carts with the glass window and like the little butter bucket. Yeah. It's just like really lovely. His machine literally revolutionized the popcorn industry. Changed the game with that butter drop. Yeah. Well, and it like, it came at a super like advantageous time, AKA, the late 1900s and the dawn of American consumer or the late 1800s, the dawn of American consumerism department stores. There's like trains, leisure. Not enough places have popcorn, just like bags that you can grab anymore. I wish department stores just sold little baggies of popcorn. Yeah. But then like you get like butter when you're browsing. It's just too messy. Yeah. But like, this is a time when it was like, like leisure was basically invented. <laughs> I love that. Just now we finally have enough time. We just finally have enough time because we have all this corn feeding our animals, all this like animals just, you know, feeding us. We're just living. Yeah. So there's this quote that says with everyone out and about the selling of items specifically designed to be snacks seemed like a natural progression. The invention of snacks. What an adorable thing. I know. So, sea creators, popcorn carts. That's how they were labeled. That's That's real bad. He should not have done that. That must have hurt the business at first, at least. No, it didn't. His popcorn carts, so they're like an embodiment of all of this. Like, that's perfect. So they're beautiful, like super intricate, like really nice. They're entertaining because they've got the glass cylinder that like fills with popcorn. And it's like built with people, like the idea of people watching it as it pops. Mm. And they're like portable. So you can like run around and chase a quick buck. <laughs> Just like running after someone. Come back here. I know you want this. Yeah. Popcorn. <laughs> or just like, you know, you need to catch the bus on your way home from a long day of like hawking your popcorn wares. Just like, oh, excuse me. Wait up. Just like running after him. Yeah. Just a visual. Uh, but the carts also allowed, like, it gave people the opportunity to start, like, their own business who otherwise wouldn't be able to. Like, 
like a cheaper version of a taxi cab in a way almost? Is that yeah, well, thing? I mean, it's like it's like a food cart. Yeah. Adorable. Yeah, and he, like, let people buy the carts on credit, which was, like, super rare. Aww. Yeah, so it seemed like he's, like, pretty nice. Again, uh, the whole popcorn game, real cute. I know! Uh, but his, so his patent ran out uh, in 1909, or, like, the protection on it ran out, so then, like, competition, like, came around. But, can um, you not, okay, for patents, can you not renew it or something like that? I don't know. I think it's different. I'm constantly confused. Mm. Patent law is very interesting, and I know nothing about it. Yes. Yes. Anyways. Uh, but, so, yeah, so, like, there's lots of competition, but, like, the Sea Creators popcorn carts were, like, such a... Like, it's so iconic that mm-hmm. his like it, it, his business didn't die, and it apparently still exists, which Where is... did he sell them? Where was he from? Sorry, I didn't catch that, or I forgot that bit. Uh, Chicago? Hmm. Well, I guess we'll go to Chicago you after Mexico. Just go on a corn tour of North America. But we're not going to the Midwest. <laughs> just completely dodge it. We could. I would like to. Um. Anyway, demand for popcorn increased. And so did the marketing opportunities. So originally, like, popcorn was just sold on the cob, like, to, like, vendors. Like, to vendors. Really? Like, people who were going to pop it. So it was just like, here, like, have a cob, like, deal with it yourself. But then because it was so popular and, like, everyone was eating it, that shelled kernels were soon sold in cardboard boxes. Uh, Movies and the Great Depression, obviously, were extremely advantageous to popcorn's popularity. Popcorn machines. Popularity. <laughs> Popcorn machines were quickly remodeled to fit in movie theaters so that theater owners could make like an actual profit because like movie prices like had to be kept low or like in order to like get people in. But that's always like, that's how it is now. Your profits are always in the food. And like they could have like a 70% popcorn market markup. Again, so cheap. The corn industry, yeah. bless. But uh, yeah, the Depression era union of popcorn and movie theaters quickly became inseparable in the American collective unconscious. It's just like, yeah, you can't, like, I can't imagine going to a movie without popcorn. I don't think you would ever be able. Have you ever gone to just get movie theater popcorn without having to see a movie? I haven't, but I know that it is a thing that can be done. Yeah, people are into that. I, my, like, uh, the ex girlfriend of. My stepbrother used to do that. My mother is obsessed with popcorn. Every time we go to the movie theaters, she has to get extra butter layered. And then every time I make a corny joke, being a corny <laughs> joke, being like, give her so much butter, she has a heart attack in the theater. Because I've noticed if I don't say it, they don't put as much you butter gotta, on. You like, really get the metaphor. In. Just like really drive it home. Like she needs it <laughs> dripping. Uh, so uh, the advent of TV in the fifties uh, mm-hmm. caused a brief dip in popcorn sales, but then advertisers quickly figured out how to convince people to eat popcorn at home. So in the fifties, we have Love. easy pop, which is just an E dash. And then a Z, uh, which was a yeah. pan topped with an expandable aluminum lid. This was quickly like piggybacked on and improved by Jiffy pop. Yes. Oh, very neat. Classic. Doesn't really work very well. Always burns campfire popcorn of childhood. Just a bit of a nightmare, but still a fun option. 
Yeah, it is. Uh, then obviously microwaves existed, which totally revolutionized popcorn consumption because it's very efficient. Gotta love it. Isn't it crazy that microwaves have a full-on popcorn mm-hmm. setting? Sometimes? It doesn't work. <laughs> you? No, it doesn't. I was going to say, no. have you ever used that? Like, no, it's a terrible idea. When were microwaves invented? Did you see that uh, in your readings? No. I just know that, like, you could get them in, like, the late 70s, early 80s, and they were, like, thousands of dollars. And, like, these huge, massive, scary, like, metal boxes that, like, could light your house on fire. Yeah. And then you'd use browning sheets so that people didn't know you cooked your whole, like, roast in the microwave. (laughs) Horrifying. Um, I feel like for some reason, like, I remember being a kid in, like, like, the early 2000s and just being, like, this microwave business still seems a bit interesting to me. Like, I don't know, maybe it was that, like, I just had, there was a lot of rules around Mm. the microwave and I was, like, taking a long time to learn them. Right. Which tracks. But, like, I just remember thinking, like, oh, goddamn, this new technology. Like, as an eight-year-old, just being, like, over my head. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like I actually recently put something metal in my microwave by accident. Like, just, like, the packaging had, like, a little bit of, like, metallic element to it or something like that. Did it completely explode? No, I caught it within, like, I was watching. Mm. I was like, I wonder if that's going to be okay. And then, like, it sparked. And I was like, nope, get that out of yeah. there. Very bad. Very bad. Yeah, it was not a fun time. Um, but, yeah. So, popcorn, microwavable popcorn, like, has sort of a controversial thing for a second. Because people are concerned and, like, about microwaves themselves. And then, like, the chemicals in microwavable popcorn. So, there's uh, diacetyl or, I don't know. You mean like in those bags? Yeah, so like not like the kernels. Of yeah, stuff. like when you get like microwave. Well, no, it's actually like it's the butter flavoring, and it's a naturally occurring, okay. uh, like substance, but it has been found to like do bad things. Maybe I don't know. Again, everything. Yes. So then people go back to basics. I am back on my like cooking it in a big bowl, like the Alton Brown method, just mm. like in a big bowl right on the stove cover it nutritional yeast it's delicious i tried it i told you with fish sauce when we did the fish right. sauce episode and it was not good but that was my own execution yes the distribution the error fault. yeah if i had a mister i think that would have really changed yes. the game so highly recommend that also i love it plain well the, so the thing is that technically popcorn is a super healthy snack just it's like as long as you're not covering it butter. in butter and salt and then dipping it in sriracha mayo like certain people currently speaking on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> but also delicious i'm definitely doing that as soon as so we're finished here so good just like oh, vehicles for dip vehicles for dip always also lol at your nutritional yeast plug thanks for that everyone should be putting nutritional yeast on popcorn it's perfect it is a delightful flavor um yeah that's that's i'm just like yeah go out eat popcorn just eat corn in general. Yeah. I guess we're not quite into because corn season. you were going to anyway. Is it corn season yet? No, it's too early. I did get corn, like I said, and there were husks. Yeah. Like, it's... I don't I know. I guess it depends where you live. I suppose. But also, maybe it doesn't depend where you live, because there's literally corn everywhere. It's true. And it grows whenever, wherever. Just... And I think the craziest thing about it is that, like, this literally shaped countries, like... The population growing because of the introduction uh, introduction of this crop, 
Like, what the heck, man? Yeah, well, and, like, the fact that now, like, almost, like, the entire world economy and at least, like, food systems is backboned by corn and corn-derived products. Like, seriously, go look at and, like, grab any packaged food product or just anything in your pantry or in your, like, fridge and read the ingredients list. Like, it's it's got and so like, much corn. It's not even the manufactured products. It's, like, any kind of animal, if you're eating that, like, has corn to thank yeah. for Yeah. That's wild. Well, and that's actually, that was one of the problems with, like, pesticides and stuff, too, which I didn't really talk about, where it's, like, Ooh. because there was like some concern where it's like, if we're going to eat these animals that have like corn made with pesticides, like maybe we should take it. Anyway. Weird that it was eating the animals that was getting that across and not just like, Oh, we're going to eat this corn. Maybe like, well, I think it's all, all of the above, but yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Well, this has been delightful. Yes, thank you and... for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Yeah, we'll see you next week. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>